Next up on Power to the Patient. He called and he said, forget the kidney, your heart's failing. And I thought, for sure, there's no other sign than like there's two signs now. No one survives this. Nobody survives this. Welcome to Power to the Patient. I'm your host, Dr. Lily Rosenthal. Please join us as we invite real people of all ages and backgrounds to share their personal stories of success, when and how they made it their priority to pivot towards better health. Let's welcome today's inspiring hero of health. Okay, welcome everybody today. Our next episode of Power to the Patient, we have a remarkable guest. Shanna is somewhat known as the Christmas medical miracle. And that is quite an important title. Oh, thank you. Um, so I was originally born in Australia, so I do have an accent. A beautiful one. <laughs> thank you. Um, and I moved to the US in 2003. My background is Portuguese and also East Timorese, which is a country in the Pacific. And um, I currently live in Southern California and I'm an advertising executive. And you had a major event, which I'm going to just sort of introduce out here in, in the front, that you are a survivor as a double transplant patient. Is that accurate? Yeah, yes. your kidney and your heart are new in your body. You weren't born with the kidney and one, at least one of your kidneys, yeah? Or maybe both, one, one kidney, yes, and, and a heart, which is unbelievably remarkable. And having you with us here today is just a, an incredible gift because you may not have been here if it wasn't for some, you know, uh, good fortune or, or amazing fortune, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually a slew of people might call it synchronicities, the universe, God, whatever you believe in a higher power. But it really did feel like we'd done everything humanly possible. And then for a slew of miracles that happened in perfect divine timing, I'd like to say that I am here today. Incredible. I mean, this is such a gift to have you with us. So thank you so much. We like to start at the beginning before we sort of work up to sort of why that happened, how it happened, and what you chose to take away from that experience, which we know will inspire other people about your choices, you know, post-transplant. We like to start at the beginning, a little bit about like growing up, like who you mentioned, you know, Australian, you know, East Timorese, Portuguese, you have a very varied background. You know, we all grew up in families and families have different cultures around health. So if you would just share a little bit about who is like in charge of your health, because as little children, we really don't really have those choices. Um, so if you can share a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, it was really my um, mom and my grandmother and really my grandmother as a matriarch of our family that was in charge of our health, if you will. I come from East Timor as a, a like I say, a country in the Pacific that is has an indigenous background. And so a lot of the health remedies that we used were very much about nature and natural. My grandma's been drinking kombucha since the 80s. I which love we kombucha. thought was like awful at the time. You know, we thought it stinks and what is this? 
And why are you drinking this weird thing? And now we pay $10 a bottle for it, right? Wow. She was a visionary, your grandmother. That's amazing. Yeah. Because it's fermented. Good for our gut microbiome, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then um, where I grew up in Australia is a place called Darwin, which is in the tropics. It's very similar weather to Bali. And so a lot of what we had there was jackfruit growing on trees. And Mm -hmm. we have... um, a lot of herbs and green leafy vegetables that just grow in the garden. And so a lot of our remedies were um, natural. Like if one of us had stomach issues, we would drink tea from guava leaves. That would be the first thing we'd reach for. So doctors weren't necessarily used unless we had an emergency really. Yeah, they were not necessary, right? Because we know this in science, right? That the body, the more we align ourselves with nature, because we are indeed part of nature, although it sometimes doesn't seem like that in our sort of first world countries and our modernization. But when, you know, we're part of of nature, we're animals, right? In, In the kingdom. So when we use things that are plants and not things that are necessarily made in a plant, which are sometimes not even foods, we kind of get into trouble, right? So we've gotten, unfortunately, very far away from some of those basic things that luckily you grew up with was just innate. It was part of your culture, it was part of your living. So I would imagine you were healthy um, growing up. Yes, were you born, you know, sort of healthy and sounds like your mother, grandmother were sort of plugged into some very natural, basic, uh, close to nature ways of living. Yeah, I'd say overall we were. Um, and you know, the other part was we didn't really come from a, from a very rich or affluent background. And so I think from that standpoint too, you know, you tend to eat more in than you do buying out and things like that, that were more by necessity, if you will. Um, but then I also think culturally, uh, so my family were refugees to Australia in 1975 and then I was born in 1980 and so culturally there was that blend of coming into Australia and bringing some of those practices um, but then also having like the western culture kind of meld together so growing up it was a mix of both for for at least for me especially teenage years and going into early 20s and then I moved to America. So that was like a whole nother cultural immersion into a whole different set of health rules back in 2000, early 2000s. And what was that like for you um, coming to America? You live in San, I think you shared with us, you live in San Diego now. Did you move right to California when you came to the US or? I did, Los Angeles. Yeah. And very different foods, yeah, than when you were growing up. Is that that sort of the major change? I mean, sort of the living was different, I'm sure, too. But yes, different different in food availability and choices, yeah? Yeah, different. It's just completely different flavor profile, the whole thing. Even the U.S. to Australia is very different. Um, You know, a lot of people will say the bread here in the States tastes like cake to us like we're not used to having Australians aren't used to having bread that lasts any longer than three or four days there's no preservatives in it there's no chemicals yeah different milk we've never had this many options you know it's starting to but 
it, it just was a very different way of life. Australia still very much is a farmland, a very like agricultural focused place. And then when you think about the country has between 20 and 30 million people, there was enough food supply to kind of feed the country. There was never a need to have it be any kind of shortages or anything that needed extra help in the sense of having food growing faster than it's supposed to. And so things like that, that didn't, didn't just has things taste different. Veering further and further away from nature. And I hear that from my patients often too, is like, I can go to, you know, to Europe and I eat the bread and it's totally different. And I feel totally different um, because of our highly, unfortunately, highly ultra processed foods, processed foods, convenience. I mean, there's so many factors going against nature, right? Because a lot of, unfortunately, in our country, so much is directed towards profits, right? So the higher shelf life, you know, the, the longer shelf life, the processed food, we went through a, a revolution. I don't know how that, in, you know, of the sort of industrialized, you know, food systems here, which is literally, and I'm going to sound radical, killing people, you know, really, really killing people because it's really messing up our health in a very, very big way. And luckily there's been some small movements towards awareness of this, but this is huge. And what you're saying is huge. So you felt fine, like for a while in your twenties, like you felt healthy, you were healthy, you know, yeah. about that. I think for me, once I came to the States, my focus was a little different. I moved over with the intention of climbing the corporate ladder. I'd gotten married and divorced within a year and a half. It had had a real emotional toll on me. So at that point, I'd put on a bunch of weight. I had, you know, my focus was almost 100% work. I was laughing just last week with a friend saying how cool I thought it was that I got my first Blackberry and my first parking spot, you know, was such like a glamour thing. Like people can reach me all the time now. Versus oh boy, <laughs> that's the beginning of the end. <laughs> yeah, I get it though. Like, we, we think that when we're growing up that we're so adult and important, right? Yeah, right. go ahead, tell us, tell us more. <laughs> right, exactly. I was saying like, I remember the first time I got my first parking spot and I, you know, I had a friend and we ate lunch in the parking spot. Like it was such a big stature play of like, now I have my own parking spot so I can come whenever I want to, to work. That really was my persona, if you will, throughout that whole time frame, where it was, I'm here, I'm, I've moved all the way to America for the opportunity and I'm here to climb the corporate ladder and do what I came to do and be successful. And so for me, that meant do whatever you had to do, work hard and, you know, sleep when I'm dead was the phrase. Wow. Yeah. And so that's really what I did. And in that process, you know, the way in which I took care of myself really was secondary and it was short term for me to feel good enough to do what I had to do. And so it was like, if I know I've got a big week coming ahead, let me get my rest on Sunday so that I know that I've got all these hours I'm going to work next week. It was all for the purpose of being able to work in the way that I wanted to. So I was consistently chasing that energy bucket to make sure that I was filled up enough to do that. And then everything else was after. 
look. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think we would agree that you kind of flipped the equation, but you're not alone. There's so many people, right? You know, you get an education, you know, we chase after power, profits, you know, this is how our system kind of works. When we were young, we can kind of, you know, get away with some of that, but we don't necessarily invest. And I like to always say, uh, you know, health is the first wealth. And if you don't have your health, if you were sort of uh, blindsided in a giant way, which we're going to get into, but um, there's lots of people that think that, and I try to, you know, uh, remind my patients and especially young people that you really want to invest in yourself and your health and the other things are really secondary but i get it our culture really kind of flips the equation um and that we just sort of beat ourselves down um i, I get it i went through medical school right so i didn't sleep i did working for 36 hours i you know uh, that's our that's our corporate ladder right you know, it, it takes a toll. The body, we're not machines, right? We're not machines. We need to be cared for. We need to be, we need to reboot. We need to rest. I always say the sort of five or six pillars of health. It's our food, our exercise, our managing of stress. It's avoiding risky, risky behaviors, vices, right? Um, sleep, which is huge. And we think sometimes we could run on 24 seven. And that's actually a badge of honor for many people in yes. the corporate world and beyond, even starting a small business, right? We just throw ourselves down at the sacrifice of that. Um, and if we don't keep up, which is a message that, you know, you grew up with, you know, good food and, and things around you in a very different lifestyle. It sounds like a slower, more sort of in sync with nature lifestyle. Um, but um, you're certainly not alone. That's a, um, and it's hard to talk people out of that you know, when they're just, you know, on a fierce path. Um, but letting ourselves be, you know, down the list is something that, you know, we, it's like pay now or pay later. Messages and habits. And it sounds like you didn't go to the doctor much. You just kind of were on this sort of tear for professional success. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Which you achieved. Yes. Yeah, I, <laughs> um, depending on who you are, I guess, and how you look at it. But yeah. Of awards. Um, at the time, I was in advertising, and so a lot of the I was working at an advertising agency, and a lot of my clients were entertainment focused. Mm -hmm. So it was very much um, whenever the celebrities felt like engaging, or you know, it was very ad hoc in that sense where it could be midnight, it could be seven in the morning. It could be anywhere in between of when we would uh, launch campaigns and run campaigns. And so that was very, and again, it was, it, to your point, it was a badge of honor around like, that's the, the top of entertainment is, you know, advertising and entertainment together was like glamorous. Yeah. And so, you know, it felt good. And to your point, it's very hard to convince a person, at least in my case, in that in that um, structure that there is a different way because sure. it sounds crazy. It sounds like there is no possible way 
that you have time to make every single meal of your entire day from scratch. Like you cannot tell me. It's insurmountable. You were there for others. You were a vessel for others. And there's a lot of dopamine that comes along with that. It's exciting. It's 24 seven. It's celebrity. It's, you know, and batch cooking, like, are you serious? Right. You were 24 seven, right. 24 go for a walk or a run. Like, no, no, I've got to be available. I've got to be on. Right. Um, I've got to be tethered to my Blackberry, which we were enjoying at the time, right? Um, And this is, you know, um, you got kind of swept up into that kind of way of living, I would imagine, Um, and probably had no messages about doing it differently, because a lot of people don't until something happens. Um, Well, it was, I had the messages about doing it differently, but it was kind of like, and it sounds really good. I definitely want to do yoga every day and you know, write in my journal. I love that, but it's not going to happen. And the days that it can, I'll, you know, I'll give it a shot, but I'm not banking on it. Right. So you you didn't, so you didn't really make it a priority, right? Um, And then tell us about when you started maybe not feeling so well, or was there sort of a, a lead up or was there an event or, you know, share with us when you're like, well, maybe I'm on the wrong track. Yeah, so I will say I never felt like I was on the wrong track. I just felt like something felt off. So at the beginning of 2015, I'd come off of having a little break over the Christmas uh, period. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I'm really tired. I just noticed I was really tired. And I thought I need to sleep or I need to rest or I need a vacation. I haven't gone on a vacation in forever. And so I decided to book a trip to Fiji. And a friend of mine was helping me book it. And I said, I want to be like Robinson Crusoe, just out in the middle of nowhere on an island by myself. And he was like, I don't think you're ready for that. Like, I'm not sure if you want to go from this to that. And I said, no, 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 I'm totally ready. I definitely want to do it. And so that's what I did over Memorial Weekend. I had 10 days in Fiji on this island. Um, The minute I got back, I was instantly tired again. Mm. And so I thought, okay, that's weird. And I thought, well, maybe I haven't gone long enough, further enough, far enough. So I've got to go to Bali and go vegan and do yoga twice a day. Like that feels like I'm for sure going to be good. This burnout feeling I've got, I'm for sure going to be good. And so I did 14 days in Bali before Christmas. And Bali's two hours away from my hometown. And so I thought I'll do Bali and then I'll go home. And that'll be a solid, you know, month where I've had a decent break. I was still working after Bali, but I thought, oh, it'll be a decent break for me. And it didn't work. I was still really tired. And then um, Christmas Eve 2015, I felt really, really sick. And I ended up in hospital. And the doctor said, what do you do? And I said, I'm in advertising. And he said, have you been tired lately? And I said, yeah, I have, but I'm in advertising. Like who isn't tired? And then he said, is your back hurting? And I said, I've just told you I'm in advertising. Like, (laughs) of course my back hurts. What else is there? And so the doctor had said, well, these two things are big markers. Let's check your blood. And they did my labs on Christmas Eve 2015 and came back and said, your um, body's shutting down, your kidneys are failing. Wow. And I thought, what? Like, you've got to be kidding. This, how? 
And he was like, I don't know, I'm asking you. <laughs> it's your body. How, how old were you at the time? I was about 30, 34. Wow. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. I just was like, I don't know what, I don't know what happened. Um, and that was the first time that I had people have asked me whether I've had an out of body experience. That was the moment I had the out of body experience. Whereas sitting there on Christmas Eve, I clearly couldn't sleep. And I saw myself and how I speak to myself. Wow. That's and it profound. was, it was really profound. It was, I'm hungry. Oh, you don't need to eat right now. Just do the next couple of meetings, then grab something. Then you'll go to your four o'clock or I'm thirsty. Well, let me just finish this phone call. Then I'll go get a water and then I'll come back and I'll do the other two phone calls or I need to pee. Okay. I think I can hold it for another two hours. Let me just get through this next couple of pieces of work that I've got to do. Then I'll go and pee. Then I'll grab water and then I'll grab food and I'll bring it all back together and I'll be at my desk this whole time. And I could hear it on loudspeaker. And that mm. night I heard it for hours of just all these one-liners. Wow. That I had said, that I consistently said to myself down to, let me just finish these five emails. Then I'll go to sleep and then I'll catch up on sleep on the weekend. But if I can just get through this next two days, I'll be good on Thursday or I'll be better on Monday or whatever that was. It was a constant chase. Wow. So you were like suppressing all of those signals from your body for years, it sounds like. Yeah. And now it came back to you like in a running script almost. Yeah. And I'd say I was aware of them, but it was an inner conversation mm. that I thought was acceptable to have with myself. Mm -hmm. I just thought that's what people did. Yeah. You know, that's just me organizing my day. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go next and who I'm going to see. And if I do this first and if I go there second and if I get in the car and the GPS says, it's going to take 45 minutes. I'm like, no, I have to take 40. So let me like cut this shortcut and get there in time. Cause if I get the five minutes, I can have lunch. Like it was a running. Always run. It was a race, a race, a race. Yeah. There was no rebooting. There was no stopping. There was no fueling. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. a consistent conversation that I thought everyone had. Mm. Like how else did you organize your day? If you don't have these options that you're choosing your own adventure as you're going. How do you get anything done was my thought process. Constantly pushing. Constantly. Okay. And then what happened at the hospital? So they stabilized me for four days and then I came back to the U.S. Um, and at that point I was in a deep silence. It was just like as if everything had, if all the noise had diminished and all I could hear was, how I talked to myself. And then I had a bunch of new questions where I was like, why didn't I go to the doctor all these years? And then answered with answers would come up. Like I hated the doctor's office and the smell. Understandable. <laughs> well, why didn't I just go find a different one? You know, like it was all these things that Good I just, felt how, and all these revelations started coming. So in a, in a first of the many synchronicities, well, might have not have been the first, actually. This might have been the second or the third. But I had done work for the National Kidney Foundation two years before. Wow. And I knew the head of the Kidney Foundation for Southern California. 
And so she was my first phone call. And little did I know, two years later, I was going to need her help. And uh, she had said, okay, here are the board members that are the best nephrologists in Los Angeles. You can go and see them, speak to this person and that person. But my first thought was, if I didn't have her, I would have never have, how do I even know the process? Who would I reach out to first? Like, where do I go? Then I get a Facebook ad that was for one medical. And I instantly called them and I said, I want a doctor who's been to both UCLA and Cedars um, that has learned from both because of the proximity to where I was and that treats the whole person. I want a 360 degree view. And that's where I met Dr. Jackie Yaris. And she was amazing for me. She sat me down. I was expecting a guilt trip. I was expecting her to say, you haven't taken care of yourself. You needed to do all these things. You didn't go to the doctor. And so I'd psyched myself up for it. And she sat me down and said, you are clearly someone who takes care of everything else. Now it's my job and I'm going to take care of you. We're going to surround you with a team. And that team of specialists is going to get you completely sorted out. And she said, in the next two days, we're going to work up everything there is to work up. And that was my first interaction with a doctor where I felt like, wow, she really gets me. That is beautiful and basic, but unfortunately that doesn't really happen in our system. And lucky you, first of all, I just want to comment on two things, if I, if I may. Um, it, you're obviously super intelligent, but to have that flip of awareness and know to advocate for yourself and what you needed at that time. So it sounds to me like you always knew it, but you kind of pressed it down because of the other demands of your sort of days and lifestyle and goals and which a lot of people do super, yeah. super common behavior, but you knew, Hey, you, you had a moment, right? It flipped for you. This is serious. I need help. And I know what I need. And luckily you sought it out and the people appeared. And yeah. I just want to, you know, amazing of that doctor, that should be a sort of universal experience for everybody going into the healthcare system. But unfortunately, as we know, that doesn't happen for so many reasons, which we could have a whole other podcast and conversation about that. How did that feel for you, for her to just put you at ease and you felt taken care of? Like the burden, you know, you taking care of all these celebrities and work stuff and putting yourself last, you accepted that from her, yes? Because you know um, you needed it. Yeah, and she tied a bow on it by saying, you didn't choose your body. Mm. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your body. You know, the stuff that you've got genetically, you didn't choose the makeup. You didn't choose the genes that you have that do what they do. And so she said, you know, either way, we're going to get a group of people around you. And um, that's what she did. And then my first round of nephrologists, I didn't like the first three. And I started to realize, and this came in my executive training, I started to realize I can interview doctors and I can fire them off of my doctor team. Mm -hmm. That is an actual thing where I can say, I don't feel comfortable with this doctor. I want a different one and actually have a choice versus the one that comes on the paper that I got referred from 
the last doctor that sent me to the next one or insurance that said, here's your doctor of choice, like I could actually choose. And so that's what I started doing was I started to get really clear on what over and above their medical experience, because the one thing all the doctors had in common were they're very experienced. They knew what they were talking about. There was nothing wrong with what they were sharing, but it was in the how and it was in the value system. So I started to look for doctors who, one, couldn't sleep unless they solved a problem. Mm. That liked challenging issues, that wanted to discover something new, that were into medical research and evolving, that were connected both from a medical standpoint, but also understood the non-medical factors that contribute to symptoms and to health. And then the fourth one was, I wanted doctors that were spiritual, that believed in something bigger than themselves. Because even at that point in time, I got like, this is going to take more than what I know as an individual. It's going to take something different to help me get through this. So that's where my four main areas that I would look for in each doctor. And I was very specific about it. And then if I couldn't put my finger on it and I just didn't like the vibe, if something just didn't quite feel right, I would just say, I don't even know why, but I want a different doctor for that. Good for you that you were intentional about your choices because often it is that just go see this person down the street who has a right. big degree. But the science actually agrees with you that the doctor-patient relationship, yes, of course, you need the skill set, you need the degree, you need the science, but medicine is really a conversation, I always say, between the doctor who has a body of knowledge and the patient, a person who has knowledge of their body, and it is a conversation. And unfortunately, a lot of our medical um, experiences are just sort of a one-way symptom suppression, you know, uh, here's a pill, here's a procedure to just kind of put a Band-Aid on what's going on. But when there's a, I always say that medicine is really a human science and there is a person, as you said, I use that language too, 360, you know, a, a full person in front of you to be curious enough, you say challenge, to be curious enough to figure out the root cause and causes, because it's often multifactorial of yes. why people are not feeling and functioning well, why you were so exhausted. You could just write it off that you're you know, an executive and you're working hard, but there was more to that. So you need both the human aspect of doctors who I don't think are going to be replaced by AI or robotics or anything anytime soon, or an app for that you know, um, for that measure, we're trying to sort of fit medicine into technology or the human science of medicine, which exactly for your story, this will never work in my opinion, or it will be so subpar. The other thing I wanted to share is the science agrees with you on that the relationship between doctor, patient, healthcare person, nurse, patient, um, that relationship matters huge. The idea, because it really changes our chemistry, it's not the full treatment, but it changes our thoughts, it changes our confidence, it changes our body's ability to heal itself, actually. 
Um, and that's huge. So you were incredibly insightful and you're not a medical professional, but you went inward and starting started to pay attention to what you needed, which is unbelievable. Um, and it sounds like you um, were successful in achieving your the relationships that you needed to help you through this very challenging time. Yeah, I really did. I found my nephrologist who now we're like family. Uh, his name's Dr. Rami Hanna, and he can't sleep if he doesn't solve, you know, a random issue, let alone a medical one. <laughs> so, yeah. I get it. I understand. Get along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get along. Like, like a pit bull, like chasing down problems. Yeah, I get it. I, I, I could be accused of that as well. <laughs> right? Like, we get along great. Yeah, yeah. He was amazing. I had to go on dialysis for four years and he was amazing in explaining enough of the process for me to get an understanding, but leaving off all of the things that were disempowering. So we had a really great agreement where I don't do averages. I don't do statistics. I don't do, you know, medians. I'm not into any of that. And I'm only into information that is going to help me make a decision for the next step of whatever we need to do. Not into long-term looking down seven tracks, like none of that. So we got a really great communication balance and it wasn't without friction of getting there, but like all good relationships, we had to figure it out. He says, I taught him the art of advocating for his patients in a way that meant every single door needed to be broken down. And if there were more doors, if there were no more doors, he had to find more doors. And so to really give him that perspective, that's his feedback now. Um, and he's still my nephrologist to this day. So four years of dialysis, I would go to dialysis. I had an outfit, which was a uh, maxi sundress. And I had a beach bag that I would go into the dialysis unit. And every single time they go, where are you going? Like, you look so glamorous because it would help me change my thought process. I'd be like, normally I'm at the beach. So instead I'm coming here and I'm pretending like that's where I'm going. Or if mm. it, my afternoon sessions, I would take my work in and I'd have a notebook and a phone and diary and I'd do conference calls from there. And I really made it feel like this is integrated into my life. Mm in a way that empowered me to not feel like I was sick. And that was the most important thing. I actually would say to them, don't call me a patient. I'm just a person going through this experience. You've got the medical part. I've got the mental and the physical. And together, we're going to get through it. But I'm not your patient exactly. ever. Don't put a placard up with my name on it. Do you want any of that in here? Don't get yeah, You're a human being. It's a human science. There's a human being. When you started to say before about the research, research is important because that's how we, we get, you know, medical developments and new technologies and, you know, new yes. information. But you're an N of one. You are one person. So the personalized approach that works for you, again, can never be you know, an app or a one size fits all, if you will, kind of experience. And I love that you 
wore, I want to see this maxi sundress now. So, and I love the beach also. So I totally understand that. Um, I'd be there with my kombucha as well. <laughs> I got you, it like I had blankets and I had a whole, a whole setup. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Cause you're bringing your, that, that is just sort of a beautiful image of self-care is I am going in and I am not sort of uh, shedding or shredding, you know, my life before I enter this probably very scary, exhausting, no place you want to be. You'd rather be at the beach, right? So you sort of made it work for you in a personalized way, which is like a beautiful, I'm going to remember that, that image. Fast forward to, so four years, I think you said of dialysis. And then I had a potential donor who was an altruistic donor. She is a uh, teacher, a public school teacher in Virginia. She's an amazing human being. Mm. And she popped up like this ray of light and said, I've got you. I'm going to be your kidney donor. We're going to get this done. And I was like, who are you? And where did you come from? And I'm so excited. And it just was so great. Her energy and, you know, my energy and the doctors, it was like, yes, we're finally, there's a light at at the end of the tunnel. It took two years to get her clearances done, which is very different. Normally it takes six months to 12 months. Mm. We had COVID in between, which delayed her final tests. And in that process, um, kidney transplants were elective or they are elective. And so when COVID hit, they were all Mm. on hold. Yeah, because we filled up our hospitals with COVID patients. So elective exactly. surgery was on hold. Wow. So that's, that's quite a, a barrier. Yeah. It was a huge barrier, which as you can imagine, I was on level 20 about, and I kept having to bring myself back down and like, I've just got to take it in. And so this was, by this time, it was August, 2020. She got cleared and all I had to do was a CT scan and a stress test. I do my CT scan. The doctor calls and says, Shana, your right kidney lit up like a Christmas tree and there's 70% chance that it's cancerous. Mm. And I was like, what? Now that we've gotten my donors ready, we're six weeks out from setting a date and the same kidney we've been looking at for five years at this point, now it has cancer? What is happening? And so I thought, I'm dead. For sure, I'm dead. Like, this is a sign from a higher up. I'm not going to be here. Two days later, the cardiologist called. His name's Dr. Geft. He's amazing. Um, He called and he said, forget the kidney. Your heart's failing. And I thought, for sure, there's no other sign. than like, there's two signs now. No one survives this. Nobody survives this. This was at the end of August, 2020. And I thought, I'm dead. I'm completely done. So I'd gone to see Dr. Geft. He said, where are you right now? Turn the car around, come into my office. I will wait for you. And what was beautiful about all of my doctors is they really got that my experience in working was keeping me sane at that time. So they would reshuffle things and figure out how to make it work for me to be able to be there during work hours. Sometimes they'd wait late and say, you could be the last patient. It was super accommodating. And this day he was like, come in, come and see me. We're just going to figure this out. So I went in and I said to him, just so you know, I can't take another thing mentally. 
and he said, we don't have to worry about anything. I've got a game plan. You live your life. That's what we're going to do. Just removing that burden from you. And he was going to figure it out. And he said, the first time I met you, I got the sense immediately that you were put on on the planet to do really big things. Mm -hmm. And that my job was to keep you alive for you to do those things. And he said, I plan on doing my job. Amazing. Beautiful. I was like, I can't even, like, I just thought all of the selection I'd done had me in the perfect right place. And he said, we're going to take one thing at a time. First things first, we get your kidney out, confirm it's not cancerous. And then after we do that, we then get, see if we can get your heart up strong enough, because first we've got to get your heart strong enough to get the kidney out. Then we get the kidney out. We say it's not cancerous. Then we put you on, get you cleared to get a heart and kidney. Then we, and I was like, I'm dead. I'm totally dead. And he goes, so much, so many, so many hurdles. Like this is just, you know, I'm worried about incredible. Yeah. Really? This is never going to happen. Like there's no way. Yeah. What are the chances that this all is going to align and you're going to have a a happy ending? Every single piece. Yeah. Very slim. Right. So he said, he said, how are you feeling right now? Suddenly he stopped and he just said, talk to me. And I said, well, I feel like I need to spend all my money, curse out every person I've ever wanted to curse out, (laughs) drink a whole bunch of tequila. And he said, well, I plan on keeping you alive. So all of those people will get retribution. So we don't (laughs) want to just hold off on all of this. And he said, go live your life. I will text you the minute I text you and say, be here or be there, get this done, schedule this, et cetera. You do exactly that. You don't think about this anymore. You do exactly what I've told you and then live your life. I'll text you again. You do that, live your life. And that's what we did. So we were able to get my kidney out, get my heart strong enough to get my kidney out, um, confirm that it wasn't cancerous. So I was like, okay. Okay. Maybe this is now back on track. Like we're now looking good again. And one of my best friends said, oh my God, your kidney came out. Your kidneys failed on Christmas Eve, 2015. And now you're going to get your heart and kidney on Christmas, 2015. And we're going to make a Hallmark movie. It's going to be amazing (laughs) because you're a Christmas miracle. It's what has to happen. Because two Christmas events, it's going to be amazing. And so I called Dr. Geft and I said, listen, we're making a Christmas movie. So we need this whole thing to happen by Christmas. So we have to speed the whole thing up. And he said, it's not really how this works, but if anyone can do it, you can. And I said, okay, that's what we're doing. And so I had this second burst of energy. Mm-hmm. And so he gave me the extensive list of clearances. I scheduled everything for some reason. Doctors were available. People had canceled. They had one spare appointment that afternoon everything just came together. And this was in the first two weeks of December. Um, December 22nd, I got admitted into Cedar sinai They put me on the list as a level four on Christmas Eve, which meant six to eight weeks admitted in hospital. And it would take about six to eight weeks. And Dr. Gaff said, we've done everything we can do. And now we pray. And I was like, that's what we've got to do. 
I've done everything humanly possible. And at that point, I was ready to die in the sense of like, if that's what was meant to be, I really have gone above and beyond. And the group of us, all of our doctors have gone above and beyond. And we all just let it go. And uh, Christmas Day at 10.30 p.m., they called and said, we have a heart and a kidney for you. Incredible. It was like, so they, they came in like, this is amazing. We can't believe it. So the next day surgery was set. The nurses said, you're our Christmas miracle. They're going to want to take so many pictures of you. So we're going to braid you up and make sure you look hot after surgery. And I was like, perfect. You're totally speaking my language. We had such a great relationship. Like we really bonded. And um, what was beautiful about it is everyone was celebrating the doctors came in and they were like, oh my gosh, we can't believe it. It was the cardiac surgeon who's been doing it 30 years. He's done over 5,000 heart surgeries. Dr. Geft, who's been a cardiologist 20 years, his father 40 years at Cedars-Sinai and the anesthesiologist, which was Dr. Kava Navab, and him and I had bonded. He'd done two of my previous surgeries. And so the three of them were like, we're so excited. This is going to be amazing. And as they're standing there, I flatlined. And that's when it became a true miracle, where my heart was set to stop on December 26. Uh, they gave me CPR for two minutes. I had what culture calls an NDE, where I saw the hallway, the light. I'm not even religious like that. And here I was standing in the hallway and I, I knew where I was because I felt this overwhelming sense of compassion mm. for every single emotion that we experience as a human being. Mm. Like what a gift it is for us to feel all of it, suffering, pain, joy, the whole array of emotion that is available as a human being. And standing there was Jesus and God. It was the whole thing. And I came back through what was three phases for me um, in the journey of, of uh, flatlining and coming back. And I sat up after two minutes of CPR and said, guys, relax. I just took a little nap. Where were we? And <laughs> still, still, like, still empowered. Still right? empowered and controlling the situation. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. No clue what's going on. The nurse was like, you're like a poltergeist. She was like, I don't know what is happening. Were, were you guiding Jesus and God as well during this situation? Right? <laughs> um, definitely not. They, they, they for sure had a plan in mind, clearly. And um, they raced me to the OR, kept my heart beating manually. Um, and sorry, I'll say right before I went under, I grabbed the anesthesiologist's arm and I looked up at him. He was trying to put me under really quickly. And I said, Kave, you've got me, right? And he said, a thousand percent, we've got you. I'll see you in a minute. And he had, he was tearing up. He had tears rolling out. And I just thought they really do have me. Like, I really felt like this was a group of people that had just come together with the one mission of keeping me alive and everything just worked. And so they uh, kept my heart beating manually for three hours while my other heart was flying in a helicopter, landed on the roof. It was a whole, the whole 
scene in the movies where they run up and get it and bring it back. My kidney came a few hours later. And then I was three days later, I was taking my first steps. Incredible. And here you are today telling your story two years later. Yes, about two years. We're coming up on the holidays. Yeah, we're coming up on Christmas. I mean, I, I can't think of a more exciting, amazing, beautiful story. And I feel incredibly lucky to be having this conversation with you after you. after what you, you went through. And I'm super grateful for the support that you had, but I don't think it was by accident because it sounded like you had a big uh, hand really in what happened to you, which is probably something you probably doesn't happen for everybody, by the way. So I just want to acknowledge that. Sometimes we're very passive in our, what comes to us. And my goodness, you had so many challenges and hurdles in front of you and you just kept on going and kept caring for yourself with an amazing team around you, which here you are. Um, tell me what your, uh, you know, clearly you have many, many superpowers because this is not a usual story that we have. What do you think you're, what would you like to share with other people who feel like giving up, who feel like they don't have control of themselves and their health? And I'm also curious what you're doing about your health at the moment, because we try to sort of have impact on people caring for themselves, you know, in the best possible way um, so they can reduce. Yes, sometimes it's genetic, but sometimes, you know, our choices and our influences have something to do with our good or bad fortune, right? Yeah, I think on a day-to-day basis, what I'm most intentional about are two things. I don't prescribe to any guilt, shame, embarrassment, mm. any of that. I've intentionally worked through those emotions and I get them out of my body. So, so I really good. believe that those emotions, your cells remember them. So Absolutely. it's acu- yeah. acupressure, acupuncture, things that it doesn't have to be those things per se, but movement that gets emotion out. I'm a huge proponent of very, very uh, big. You may not know this. I'm an osteopathic physician and I do manual work on my patients. Usually people come to see me in pain. I'm not a, 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 a transplant surgeon, but I see people in pain and just the manual... And our traumas and our experiences and our stress, it lives in the body. So yeah. what you say, you know, energetically, if it's whatever, I, I, you know, yoga, running, breathing, like we have to, and first of all, the awareness of these things and the awareness that this is just sort of good, healthy hygiene yes. um, of not letting these things get stuck in the body, we'll say. I think you're saying the same thing. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't boot camp myself. I'm not yeah. like, I'm going to work out 30 minutes every day and do it. like none of that anymore. I literally, and the second part is I listen to my body. Mm. If I needed to eat right now, as amazing as this conversation is, I would figure out a way to okay, make- give us, give us three more minutes. Where, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, it's one of those things where it's like, if I treat my, I treat myself like a toddler. Like if you had a two-year-old that was hungry, there's no way you and I'd be able to continue the conversation. It just yep. wouldn't happen because the yep. toddler would be like, I'm eating, period. Like, I don't care what's happening in the world or if they need to pee or they need to do something. Like, it has to be in that moment. And yep. I do my best to treat myself like a toddler. If my body needs something, I get it for it. And oh. that can 
a range of things, fresh air to showering longer than I normally would or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. really being in tune to that. So that's a really big part. And that's on the smallest of decisions. Like we talked about the daily decisions of it, not necessarily like I'm going to juice for 90 days and do this big thing. It's more about like every single day, those little moments where we might put ourselves second. Yep. To actually, no, I'm not willing to compromise the fact that I am thirsty. So I'm going to go and take a break when I feel like I can't or whatever that is. Right. Not, not letting it rule you, but actually make the intentional. Ch- First of all, paying attention to the signals of the body, because I like to say the body doesn't lie. The mind doesn't lie either. Right. And we can't run away from these things. So um, I love what you said, you know, no shame, no guilt, because that sits with us as well. And that could be devastating and destructive. So exactly. it's yeah. all part of it. It's all a combination. But those two things have been really big for me. And then I'd say the third one is connecting with something greater than myself outside of myself you know having faith no one really broke it down for me but my grandmother had a one-liner that I still hold on to which is believe in something greater than you Mm -hmm. so that when you are in a situation where you're like I've done everything I know how to do you know that you've got a best friend that is right there, that is a higher power from somewhere. It doesn't matter what it is, but that is outside of you that you can know that does have your back. And building that relationship, truly building a relationship, whether it's with nature, the universe, Buddha, God, whatever that is for you. Agreed. But building that relationship is really important because you're only one person with two hands. And, you know, like there's a certain set of, circumstances that you may come across where you don't know what to do and it is out of a human realm mine is a good example where we really did everything humanly possible and I'd say that the last thing is you are the CEO of your life you can figure out who is the best team to be around you in every single circumstance and taking care of yourself medically doesn't have to be different to that I'm your host, Dr. Lily Rosenthal, with a giant thank you to my partner and the amazing team at MedShadow. MedShadow is a nonprofit whose mission is committed to educating the public on science-based options for making the best healthcare decisions for ourselves and our families. Perhaps you or someone you know have a success story to share. Have you avoided surgery or medication by adopting a healthier lifestyle? Have you beat or reversed a chronic disease by changing the way you eat, sleep, or move? Have you lost weight and got healthier? We would love to hear from you. Please email us at powertothepatientpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, be well and stay healthy.